Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. How can we like each stand up individually into our own sovereignty, into creating the conditions conducive to feeling most alive, being most vital, doing my best work because you, you know, if I were at the ready and I were like, Aaron, you need to do everything so I can do my best work. And you're like, oh, that's like <laughs> too much for me to do. Yeah, that's a hard pass for me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Hello, hello. We are joined by our dear friend, Larissa Conte. Larissa is a coach, a rites of passage guide, and the founder of Wayfinding, a coaching and consulting organization that helps leaders and teams learn how to steward power that serves the whole. Larissa is also a former member of the Ready. Larissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with both of you today. On today's episode, we are very excited to talk about how we might transform our relationship to power at work. But before that, we will transform our relationship to each other with a check-in round. I love it. That was a really clean transition. Thank you so much. We are going to do a check-in. Let's get present and connected. The check-in question for today is, what is your morning routine? Which is, for me, it's kind of a triggering question because I don't want to wake up in the morning. So I will... I'll start and then we'll go Rodney and then Larissa. For me, it is try try to wake up naturally if possible rather than with an alarm. And I have a 10-year-old, so that that takes care of that. And then maybe if I'm if I'm not being super good, there might be a little bit of of phone time in the bed. If I am being good, that will not happen. And then it's straight into the shower for me because I need to like wake up and clear the dust and the cobwebs of my dreams off. Then downstairs uh, for breakfast making and then usually right into my first thing. So there, I, I don't have like a morning exercise routine or meditation routine or planning routine. Most of that stuff for me happens after work. That's it. Over to you, Rodney. Nice. Okay. So it varies dramatically weekday to weekend, but I'll talk <laughs> about weekdays. Uh, so we are currently writing a book. And what that has meant for my morning routine is that it looks completely different than it did when I was doing client work all the time, mm-hmm. um, which means basically I roll out of bed. And before I can even think about how much I don't want to work on the book, I start writing. Um, yes. So I like make coffee and hug Banjo because he's the only one who's up in the morning, Rosie and Ed are still sleeping. And then I just work and write and think in the same chair, listening to the same like meditative music until about eight or nine. And then I do my proper routine where it's like, then I like Mm. get 
up and get organized and think about the day and look at Slack and do all like sort of let the world in. But my my new present routine is like shut the world out except for hugs from Banjo for like the first two hours before anything else is allowed to creep in. I actually really like it because then it feels like if nothing else good happens, at least I've had that quiet time to do something. The dreamy writing time. Mm-hmm. Larissa, Beautiful. what do you got? Well, I love this question because I've been honing my morning routines since 2006. Wow. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's like a devoted practice in my life. So in it's, you know, when I'm fully in that devotional practice, as opposed to the times when I fall out of balance, I wake up with the sun, which I've been doing for many years. And then I meditate to quiet my mind. So I don't just launch into my day for my thinking, but I get centered in my body. And then, um, I can either do Qigong, which is a energy cultivation and subtle movement practice that opens the body because when I'm at my standing desk or I'm sitting, my body can develop patterns that I don't totally love. So to open my body and get things circulating, I form an intention for the day. Sometimes uh, I speak my gratitude to life for getting to be alive because I don't take it for granted that I get to wake up every day. Then I prepare, as Rodney joked in the beginning, I love beverages. I prepare a bunch of (laughs) beverages for myself, adaptogens and herbal things. And then I get started. Amazing. Amazing. I picked that check-in question for you. Because I really? knew you had like <laughs> oh, a very nuanced <laughs> answer. <laughs> it's so many things. In our in our programs, when I share with participants what I do, I'm like, you know, at its longest, it can take three hours. <laughs> and for listeners, I don't have children or pets, but it's something I do love quite a lot. <laughs> your morning routine is your child and your pet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's luxurious. It's luxurious. I love it. I love it. So today we are going to talk about power at work and maybe like the future of power at work. And um, let's just start by getting some definitions out, Larissa. So tell us how you define power at present and how you got to that. Happy to. Yeah, so we define power at Wayfinding as the capacity to move energy through systems. So there are several things embedded in that definition that we can learn right away with this framing. First, it's a capacity. So that means it's a skill that can be developed or atrophied in our beings. Second, it's about our ability to move energy. And there we get to the fact that power is a sensing-based skill. It's not an idea. And also because there are so many types of energy, there are accordingly so many types of power, not just this monolithic either have power or don't have it. And then lastly, we're talking about moving energy through systems. So it's a capacity in an interconnected reality across scales of existence. So to work with power most effectively, we need to see and be fluent in systems perception and dynamics. So I got there because I was so curious about the origin of the word and how how vague we can be when we're talking about power, often how also um, negatively stigmatized we can be when we're talking about power. Mm. So I went seeking through etymological history in the English language, and 
the word power became associated with the notion of authority or control in the 13th century, especially with the ability to create an outcome in battle. Mm. So that's like a very strong center to orbit around for that word. And that's often what people think about, which then constellates all of our associations and connotations with it. And it's very reflective of a worldview. But then from a different perspective, a man named Jose Luis Stevens, who is a former organizational consultant and a shaman, defines power as taking on ever more responsibility for ourselves. So that's mm-hmm. the shamanic perspective. And in that regard, I mean, that's a very different organizing center. So also that power isn't something that we own, but it's something that we have the capacity to move through us or not. So in the brave new work world where we're talking about sensing tensions and systems and becoming more agile, I wanna share that because if we can sense tension and flow, that's a fundamental capacity in being able to expand our power literacy. So that was that was broad. And I'm wondering for, for someone who's listening and thinking like, do I have power? Does everyone have power? What forms of power do I have? How would you advise them to think about those questions? Yeah, yeah. So the first response is like, absolutely. Everyone has power, but we just don't often realize it because our definition usually centers us on authority, control, and like having the might to win in some sort of battle. Mm -hmm. So when we open up a broader definition of power, then it's like, oh, what could those be? So we've actually mapped 30 types of power that show up most commonly at work across these five scales of being. And when you start to think about power beyond just what's happening in my organization, which there are common types of power that we also usually associate with when we talk about the word. So we're talking about things like positional power, sure, decision-making power, network power, resource power, which is what we call, uh, which like bundles in money and budget and things like that. But then there are many other types of power that are often overlooked and unrecognized at work. So when we start to look at those instead and we recognize, oh, there's a huge amount of power in my ability to foster play. There's a huge amount of power in my caretaking of other people. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of power in my ability to tell stories then it starts to expand the conversation. And I'll just pause there since I know we can go many directions. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of dovetails what you were saying. This isn't really a question as much as a reflection, but to me, what you're talking about dovetails the kind of conversations I've had with folks when we start to talk about our superpowers rather than Mm. just power, Mm -hmm. where I feel like you're right, powers can be very stigmatized in its perception. And people are kind of like, power is this very traditional, top-down, hierarchical, power-over simplistic view. And then when you say, well, what are your superpowers? People are like, oh, well, I'm really good at play or I'm really good at influencing or helping others. You start to get into those conversations. Does that reflect your understanding? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we can also start to clean up our, our power confusion when we recognize that 
power, there's like two main distinctions that I like to start with. Power that serves the whole and shadow power. And to recognize that we are all, each individually, embodying both power that serves the whole and shadow power all the time. Mm -hmm. So that starts to break down this concept. One, that like power 100% equals power abuse, which is why people can be like, power's bad. I don't want to have power, especially people who are change agents or heart-centered leaders um, or who are impact or cause-centered leaders. There can be this very conflicted relationship with power. But if power is our capacity to move energy through systems, we actually want to expand power and our ability to be with large flows of energy in order to create those changes. So getting rid of that fraught relationship is a very important first place to start. Yeah. Something I wanted to talk to you about was very related to that. So I am about halfway through your power at work course, which is great. Everyone should go take it. And here's what I've been surprised about. I assumed that more of the learning was going to be about like not abusing power and not hoarding power and recognizing power imbalances. And I have been surprised at how balanced that stuff is with noticing when we are giving power away or when we are fixating on power holders rather than like inhabiting our own. And and I was, you know, it probably says something about me that like I had a certain set of assumptions going in, but I but I found it really interesting to see that that it felt like there was a real balance between those two pieces of content because I was not anticipating the latter. So I'm curious just to hear from you like what that what that brings up and and how how you sort of architected that when you started teaching this. Yeah, this is it's so interesting cuz when I have conversations about power we very quickly <laughs> veer into focusing on shadow power uh-huh. first. Yeah. You know? <laughs> totally. And it's just a very notable pattern. But uh-huh. what's also interesting is that when we start going into shadow power, because we can tend to focus on how we've been hurt or how we view other people wronging us, mm-hmm. we can do that from our own shadows to want to feel justified, or we can just do it out of wanting to understand things that have been painful. Mm. But there are, there are two imbalanced kind of archetypal expressions of shadow power. One is power over, which is like a, a dominating power. It's creating mm-hmm. the illusion that I am above you, that I am better than you. And that is, that's a really obvious association for people. Mm -hmm. The one that's less obvious is power given away or victim postures, victim consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it as if power is the capacity to move energy through systems, directing energy to belittle other people or to control other people or to make them feel afraid is an obvious like directional force. Yeah. But then the victim experience is that same force directed inward at self, Mm. which is to say that we are so powerful 
that we can block our own power to be greater than we are in the moment. Mm. And that's what be- can become mind blowing. That if we think, if we like look to nature and you think about the example of a mighty river, like the Colorado River, and a dam on the river, like the Hoover Dam, that is an enormous piece of engineering and architecture. And we create those dams in our psyches throughout all of life. Mm-hmm. And that dam has to be very strong and very fortified and have all sorts of like attendance and maintenance and repair to keep it up, to hold back this much larger, more timeless force. Mm-hmm. And that's also what we're dealing with constantly in the internal landscape. So as leaders, when we start to gain awareness of this, this is important in our outer work because those dams show up in budgeting conversations. Mm -hmm. They show up in innovation brainstorms. They show up in moments where, oh, we're having a huge layoff and there's a ton of grief in like throughout the organizational body and the team. And I remember once I, uh, I was hired by a leader who they had had just these like very painful, successive layoffs that were so disorienting to the people left. And someone in the, the like culture people team brought me in to help with a sort of grief experience. Mm. And the leader who was overseeing it all was like, yeah, like, but can you make it kind of rah-rah? <laughs> like grief, yeah, but exactly. rah-rah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Like grief, death, but a party? rah-rah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Right. Like right. sadness, but no tears and smiles. <laughs> and And that, I wanted to share that story because it so perfectly captures how uncomfortable we are with certain types of power. Mm-hmm. But when instead, you know, by contrast with another group, and like I do more things than just grief rituals for organizations, but grief is a particular type of energy that scares, often like terrifies leaders because there's a wildness to the power of grief mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, people might might start saying what they really think. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's like, keep the door on. <laughs> <laughs> And instead, it's like, oh, well, what if we actually just create a meaningful space for people to grieve? You might be surprised that, like, the tenderness held within the people in your organization isn't going to burn the building down. Right. right. It just wants to be heard. Right. Why do you suppose that we struggle so much to have power literacy in our culture and, and at work in general? It feels like the level of sophistication there is not super high. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. what you think is feeding that or even holding that back. Yeah. I think the first thing is challenge with how subtle it is. Mm. Because power, since power is not an idea, that first and foremost is challenging in our organizational context where we reward thinking and mental power mm-hmm. and where we often only selectively reward sensing power and we often stigmatize sensing power. So if understanding power is based on our ability to sense, but what we only accept certain types of sensing and then we shun a 
lot of types of sensing, then we're not going to actually going to get to nuance. Because if we're having a conversation about the budget and then the whole room feels like an explosion went off based off of the tone of one of the senior leaders, and it's not recognized or acknowledged by anyone, then it's hard for anyone to catch or feel like validated in what happened. Whereas uh, the people who are very attuned, they're like, whoa, that happened. You know, like, ooh, okay, I guess we're just gonna steamroll over this. It's a type of cultural gaslighting. where, like, when we just keep passing the moments that it comes up, we render it invisible. But instead, when we're in cultures where we're like, oh, hey, stop, like, what was that? Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on? When we catch it, then we start to develop shared literacy. Because to sense something that's invisible, we need language and we need to develop the capacity, again, coming back to our capacity, to perceive it. So, how do we do that? If we can't perceive our own level of fatigue and we just constantly work over how tired we are, it's going to be hard for us to be very good at sensing all of the other types of power when we're so used to numbing ourselves. So a lot of what we do at Wayfinding is we start by having people just begin with sensing two core metrics. And we do these two activations. One is an aliveness activation, which is to me, like to me, these are the two most important metrics in a culture of high collaboration because it's recognizing what's the amount of capacity we even have in the room. So if you are, if you're low aliveness, you're often not gonna have, you know, if you're healing, if you're grieving, if you're burnt out, you're not gonna be at your creative best. Mm. So if like we are organizational athletes in a certain way together, if it's not okay to say how alive or not we really are, and everyone's just expecting everyone else to always be at 100%, then it's an unsafe dynamic. Right. Because you're like, oh, I don't want to reveal that I am so tired. Right. (laughs) And then that's connected to the second metric we use, which is consciousness balance. So if you imagine a glass jar with some soil in the bottom and then water on top of it and the lid screwed on, when it's just at rest, the soil is all settled at the bottom and the water is going to be clear. But when we're very agitated, it's like shaking the jar and then you get a tornado and mm-hmm. the clarity is gone. So when we're triggered, when we're dysregulated, when we're disoriented, when we're spun up, we can't see clearly. And it also, if we're trying to create from that place, we may not be able to tell the difference between, oh, am I having a triggered, uh, a source of trigger, like move through my being? And is that the place I'm expressing from? Or is this actually a helpful idea that's contributing to where we're going? Mm-hmm. So to start with those two places is how we begin to build the muscle in people to recognize, can I even experience power in my own body? Because if I don't understand it in my own being, and if I don't navigate by it, it's much harder to do it at more complex scales, like in relationships, at the scale of organization, in society and nature. And then the fifth scale we focus on 
is ceremony and meaning. That's cool. I want to go back to something that you just said. There were a lot of things in there that I wanted to ask you about. I know, about, I, I know. I'm like, I, that was a lot. I'm just going to let you choose. Thanks. I'll pick my own adventure. Um, you do that. Okay. Um, dude, I miss you. This is so fun. Um, I miss you too. I miss you too and love you very much. I feel like what you just said about reaction and... Like when we are sort of like in our in our trauma reaction and when mm-hmm. there is useful data in that, I, I, I think mm-hmm. that there's something, I mean, there there's something in that particularly in a self-managed context or a self-management context that mm-hmm. is so challenging. Um, mm. It's so challenging. And it's like on the one hand, on a very heady level, I think all of us understand and believe that we are responsible for our own reactions. And on another hand, when we're in systems where we have a lot of autonomy and sovereignty, it can be very difficult to parse, you know, what is this reminding me of that was something that is a bad memory? And what of this is really like useful and important data? And sometimes I think that those things are actually one and the same. Sometimes I think like, you know, really, really reactive, really challenging feelings that come up are also really useful data. But but understanding where those things are coming from is helpful and important. So can you just talk a little bit more about like how you help people parse that? Yes. Oh my gosh. A million percent. So I'm first going to start with your your supposition that maybe they're always the same thing. Mm. In my perspective, they're always the same thing. Really? In my perspective, if you think about like the volume of a musical note, Mm. a musical note being like loud and really audible that's a type of sensing in our body. And then the tone of it, it's like, oh, is it joyful? Mm -hmm. Is it rageful? Is it despairing? Is it peaceful? So the, the loudness of what we're sensing always has information for us. And Mm. I, one of the things that is um, perhaps unique about me and about our work at Wayfinding is that I'm very interdisciplinary being. So yes, I have backgrounds in leadership coaching and organizational design and culture design and the future of work. And I also have background in personal wellness and food as medicine and experience for healing from a near fatal accident and studying wisdom traditions around the world, including alchemy and esoteric texts and you know, regenerative design and ecological design principles. And to me, they all intersect. And I bring that up because the information in an alchemical sense, a stuckness, and you both know this so deeply, and I know you know this from our work when we over when I overlapped with you at the ready, is that every tension contains the information for its own antidote. Mm. That's an alchemical principle. So if if one of the tensions in a team system is that people are feeling very overworked and underheard, they need a space to pause and connect, you know? So we actually have to get great at sensing the nature of a tension or a blockage. So when that comes up in our own system, that's the first piece. Then, Rodney, if you can remind me... <laughs> of the second piece of um, (laughs) how to do that. Like if you can speak from that, what that means 
like what your curiosity is for how that shows up in self-managed systems. Yeah, totally. I mean, first of all, you just saying like, I think that the trauma reaction and the useful data are always one and the same to me is like a pretty significant insight and shift because a lot of us through self-work are trained to like start to separate an emotional or trauma-based reaction from the reaction that we ultimately like share and to and to spend some time paying attention to what is present and what is real and what is informed by something bad that happened previously, et cetera. But your your take that like there is always useful information inside of that reaction is in and of itself like what I was basically looking for. I guess the mm. question is then in terms of, so like say I'm in a self-managing system and, you know, beca- because the shape of a self-managing system isn't a triangle. And so it's not that, and and because all of us have an expectation of participation and voice and autonomy and authority, it it, it creates a different it creates a different culture and it creates a different set of expectations. And whereas when I've been in real traditional hierarchies, like, you know, something comes down and it doesn't really matter how you feel about it. And over time, yeah. <laughs> you stop really feeling about it because you're like, oh, shit rolls doesn't downhill matter. and like I'm downhill. And so this is how life is. Whereas mm-hmm. in a self-managing system, when something new happens, when there's some provocation that is like, you know, a new client comes or someone leaves or a piece of governance that is spicy gets proposed or what, like whatever the thing is, there is not that same level of like learned helplessness. So people feel their mm-hmm. feelings and they have their reactions And I do generally think that there's something useful inside of that. And in the moment, it can be really, really difficult. Yes. Okay. Difficult for the person person (laughs) receiving it, like on all sides of that coin, I think it is really challenging. Yeah. To me, this is, this brings up the, the inner work of, of evolutional organization because you know, one of the huge benefits that the ready is offering to the world, to your clients, to the listeners of the podcast is you're running so many experiments and you're gathering so many examples of what works in the outer work of our outer evolution. And the, and the vision of self-managing systems and being dynamic and people are like, oh, the murmuration, like the way those starlings do that, we can be like that. You know, it's like very inspiring. <laughs> but then people really, like that's a common metaphor that inspires people is watching starlings and a murmuration. And yet starlings are already sensing beings, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for effective embodiment of our power that serves the whole in a self-managing system, we have to recognize, oh, I embody both power that serves the whole and shadow power. And first and foremost, I actually need to track myself and my own shadow power rather than becoming a dedicated finger pointer in shadow power outside of me 
because we need to know when our jar is shaken. Because when our jar is shaken, we go into a different perspective, which isn't to say that every time we're having a triggered reaction, we can't see anything clearly. But we do also need to recognize that the important information in the reaction might be, oh, I need to put this down. I need to choose forgiveness. I need to choose to just focus on another way of being. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that because I feel like there's a debate happening in the court of public operating systems right now between companies that are are basically trying to ignore, which is sort of what my cultural programming was. Like I feel like the the narrative growing up as as an Irish white man was like, if you have a feeling, you can confront it and get rid of it rather than feel it. And and sort of like the whole stuff it down <laughs> paradigm, right? Like you, you know, the job yeah, is to is yeah. to have power over the feelings, right? And I feel like there's a set of cultures out there right now that are that are famously taking stands about like, we're the kind of workplace where we just focus on the work and you leave all your bullshit at home. And then there mm-hmm. are other workplaces on the other polarity that are like so in their feelings that sometimes I worry about their ability to get anything done. And mm-hmm. and it sounds like what you're talking about is that there's like a facility to kind of be, live in between those two dynamic tensions. So I'm just curious, when you think about the the ideal state, what does it look like in practice? Like if we were to sit and watch the movie of, a, of an organization five years from now who is really tuned in to the wisdom of what you're talking about, how, do, how does it show up if you watch that movie? Mm. What I hear when you, when you describe those two ends of the spectrum is like in the first one, we only focus on types of power that are at the organizational scale for the purpose of execution and creation. Right. And at the other end of the spectrum, it's like, becoming so beholden to from whatever you know belief orientation of like oh we must we must tend to the inner work all the time in the collective scale so if you're having like an inner experience does it always get to take center stage in the collective scale mm-hmm. and this middle way which then just like can railroad Uh, things moving forward because we may not be able to digest it in timely fashion, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in this middle way, one possible option for a third way that I'll present of that movie is based on the nested scales of power that I orient around. So if you think of five nested ovals, the first one being personal well-being, There are aspects of my shadow that I get to reckon with. And this this tension comes up so much in work and not just the realm of of organizational evolution for our operating systems, but also in like the culture at work and the making work more human sphere. Mm -hmm. It's like, what is the role of the organization in being a place for people's wholeness is one way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. And it can be from one seat. It can be like, I want you to do more focus, pointing at people who have positional and decision-making power. And then people with this positional and decision-making power are like, stand up. 
<laughs> like you do you, you mm-hmm. like you take care of you. And so there's this middle way where it's like, oh, what am I responsible for in this first sphere of my personal well-being? How do I need to develop my own sovereignty around my physical power and my aliveness? Is it going back to the morning routines check-in? Is it really your responsibility that I wake up and check Slack Mm -hmm. instead of going running or doing yoga or whatever is actually going to create an enlivening system in my body. When are we putting blame on spheres outside of ourself rather than taking responsibility? Then in the sphere of relationship and intimacy, how do people have the skills to digest blockage and evolve in new ways interpersonally? And do we have like shared shared cultural tools around that so it doesn't always have to be arbitered or like become the centerpiece at the organizational level. But then also the organizational level needs to make space for the types of power that unfold at the societal and ecology realms, which the last couple of years have brought up in huge effect, mm-hmm. you know? So people, workplaces are actually finding, oh, I feel more connected to my team I feel more motivated to be here and I feel a greater sense of meaning when we acknowledge all of these acts of systemic oppression or public fuckery or our climate grief. Like it makes me feel safer, more trusting, more loyal, more creative that we unite around our participation as global citizens in this organizational body. And then when we create space for ceremony and meaning, you know, meaningful transitions, things like that, then it's not all falling on the organization, but the organization is also valuing it. So it's a, it's a, like leaders aren't brushing it aside as this is inconsequential. This is getting in the way of work. We don't need to do this, but also employees aren't saying you need to do it for me. Mm-hmm. You need to make the space for me because if we go back to those two types of shadow what I'm functionally describing is like the shadow version of power over and the shadow version of power given away. So in our middle way, how can we like each stand up individually into our own sovereignty, into creating the conditions conducive to feeling most alive, being most vital, doing my best work because you, you know, if I were at the ready and I were like, Aaron, you need to do everything so I can do my best work. And you're like, oh, that's like too much for me to do. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard pass for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> really? Why? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I have a related question because you've been like, you've, you're really making me think practically now about like the lived experience of an individual or a leader in a system. And I feel like there's a lot of folks running around who have some kind of power trauma that they're carrying or just even mm-hmm. general general trauma and but maybe they haven't done all this work that you're talking about they haven't done the reflection the self work they haven't they haven't figured out how to how to dance with these feelings and and these experiences that can kind of surface how do you engage with with a colleague like that if you're if you're in that environment and you see that they're going through that experience of being 
triggered by the system or being activated, but it's not, it's not clear that they're going to be able to self soothe or self solve. What does it look like as a, as a partner or as a leader in a system like that, engaging with, with someone like that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to have to answer this hypothetically because our system is a pretty small team at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the hypothetical. It's, it's more yeah. fun anyway, as a narrative. Yeah, device. exactly. And I also, I know the hypothetical well, because, um, I coach people through this constantly. So for example, I think about an executive who I coached who ran a several thousand person international team. And one of his direct reports um, was someone who had a lot of mastery power. So very, very exceptional in the execution of his skills and generated a lot of value in that way. But he had very poor networking power, very poor like use of information power. He wasn't a great communicator. He had a lot of shadow time power. He was rushing. He would just kind of create chaos tornadoes everywhere. And this is where the concept of water lines really comes in for me, is that we can, we can, uh, that leader can support their team member and say, Hey, um, I want to raise this awareness for you. Like this is this is what's happening. This is how you're affecting people around you. This is how you're affecting the team. Uh, you may not have the resources to deal with it. I'd like to offer you resources to engage with it. You know, like a coaching resource or something. Or even we have mentoring sessions if that leader is is skilled enough to be the one or has the time to be the one. But then. Also to recognize what am I not willing to sacrifice or put at risk for the team and the business in the process of supporting this individual as they grow through their own development process, which is true for all humans. So to identify those things and to say, as you do with any water lines, to sense into what's what's okay, what's within the safe to try realm, and then what is just not possible, at which point, at which point it's like, it's too much inflammation in the team, it's too much blockage, it's too much um, like fall off in morale of the people working with you. But then also like how as it's a, it's an interesting question too, in a larger way, because how are we as cultures and organizations committing or not to this aspect of the work? Mm-hmm. Because I, and, th- and this is just my perspective, and I'd be very curious to hear from both of you, is what do you think is the necessity of developing this, these elements of power literacy, as I'm describing it, or doing the inner work, in order to truly succeed at the outer work? Because for me, right. and, and this just might be like the centering of my bias, but... I also see it as a truth is like, it's a requisite. Like if you don't have the inner work, you're always going to be hitting an upper limit on the outer work. I'm curious what you two think. Yeah. I mean, I, so my answer, like any good consultant is, I think it depends (laughs) on what your like major malfunction is, uh, what the, what the work is that's required. You know, if I, I think in general, if you are trying to participate in a system with other human beings, whether that's a family system or a work system or another kind of system, 
and you have not explored what your own values are, what your own, you know, patterned reactions are, um, and you don't have practices for cultivating perspective taking or for humility or for finding options, I think you're kind of fucked. So I, you know, I think, I think the, the sort of 201 level of that probably depends on what your natural shadow is and, and where you typically break bad and under what circumstances. But I think in terms of the, the sort of introductory level, most of the, most of the folks who I see really struggle with this just have not done the introspection to really understand their own patterns and what's important to them. And and I think if if you have a pretty clear map of that, the rest of this becomes a lot easier than if you don't. Aaron, what would yeah, you I, add to that? Well, I think that's very well said. I, I think the only thing I would add is that I think that as a colleague, it's just it's a lot more effortless to engage in varsity level play with someone when they have the language of of talking about what's going on inside them. Like if somebody can just say like, Hey, I'm below the line about that. And here's what, you know, here's, here's a need I have, or here's a request, like those sorts of things make life a lot easier and more pleasant. I think it allows you to, to do more sophisticated things. But I also believe, and I think we've seen some evidence of this, that there's a relationship between systems work and internal work in the sense that your internal system and health or trauma is a result of experiences you've had in real systems throughout your life, family systems, cultural systems, business systems. So if it made you the way you are, or at least you had a relationship with you in creating the way you are, it can also change the way you are and who you are. And so sometimes for me, there's something really interesting that happens when a system level experiment creates an internal level epiphany or an internal shift and I, I like that too. So it's kind of a, a, a both and for me. Like I do believe that that elevation is a prerequisite for the highest levels of expression. And I think you can unlock some things in the self game just by playing the systems game. Totally, totally. And that's the power of culture. <laughs> because we can just, we ju- you just start like harmonizing with the larger group. Yeah. So it doesn't, I'm not saying that it has to be the prerequisite, Sure. but in that athlete expression, it's true that it's like, Oh, it's just when we, when we're, we all have that level of skill and, and like grace in our being, then the games, like the, what's possible to play just becomes completely different. Uh, that, that was such a good kind of slam and quote to draw things to a close on. So I actually am going to, I'm going to stop us there because we could go on forever. Uh, Larissa, where can our listeners find out more about you and your wayfinding work? Yeah. Uh, listeners can find out more about wayfinding at wayfinding.io. And we, I actually have a gift for the brave do work listeners. (laughs) For those of you who are curious, because I'm so grateful to everyone around the world working to make work more human, to make work more beautiful, to tackle the many, many global challenges facing us today that require coordinated action and inspiration. So for those of you who are inspired to learn more about your own power constellation and how you express power, we have a promo code for you for thanks for listening all the way through. So if you go 
to wayfinding under the Power at Work program and use BNW Friends at the checkout, you'll get 20% off. Ooh, everybody take it. It's a really good Look at course. that. Plus, you get to see Larissa's dope earring game, which is (laughs) next level. Second to none. Second to none. Um, Larissa, I love you. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you so much, Aaron Rodney. It's been awesome being here. And I'm so grateful for the work you do in the world. Likewise. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin, as always, for using the power of making us sounding good. Um, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. And you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. As for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.